Yo, hey everyone. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. This week I'm joined by an NHS doctor and this episode is a partnership with the Mayor of London. So over the last 18 months, I I haven't done an episode on the podcast specifically talking about COVID-19 or about the vaccine or even about my own you know anecdotal experience of having COVID. And for a number of reasons, you know, the last year has been, of course, it's been incredibly challenging. We've had this global collective experience, but as individuals, it's been very different for everybody. And we've seen, you know, the disparity between different ethnic minority groups, between people of different social economic status. It's been a very divisive um, time, especially when thinking about the vaccination. So I guess if I'm really honest, I was cautious about doing a podcast, speaking about this. But then I also thought, you know, I have this podcast for a reason. I always talk about that. You know, I want to motivate. I want to encourage. I want to have conversations, important conversations with with interesting people and to listen and to learn. So with everything, you know, I, we talk in this episode about the need for compassion and understanding. We talk about risk and safety and how do we, what do we think about when we talk about risk and is is something like a vaccine safe you know what are the parameters that we're using and we also talk about you know health and fitness and well-being and, and all of these things and how they've impacted and, and what learnings we can take from the pandemic and as always if you find the information in this episode useful then please do share it with others let's dive in welcome to the power hour i'm adrienne herbert wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Tassine Khan. Thank you so much for joining us. And this is a special episode of Power Hour brought to you in partnership with the Mayor of London. Dr. Tassine, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me on today. Now, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And, you know, in this episode, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. But we're going to be looking at a life post-pandemic and the importance of vaccines in the fight against the coronavirus. So in many ways, it feels like things are, you know, now returning to some sort of normality and things seem to be, you know, opening again and work and schools, some travel. But as we know, the COVID virus, unfortunately, is still here. It hasn't gone away. And as a result, I think many things are actually still, you know, being impacted for further weeks, months or maybe even years. So... There is a lot of things, as I said, that I want to kind of get through today. And Dr. Tassin Khan works as a GP in Hackney as a senior clinical advisor in the COVID vaccination program, working on the London COVID-19 vaccine rollout. So once again, thanks for joining Dr. Tassin. And I'd love to really start off by, I guess, you know, when we think about global pandemics, we haven't seen a global pandemic at this scale since the days of, you know, smallpox, the plague and the Spanish flu in 1918. But in more recent years, of course, we have seen other diseases outbreaks such as SARS and Ebola, but nothing's ever reached like the entire global population at such speed and at such scale. So we've all heard that history repeats itself. 
so I guess did the medical and science community, you know, did they expect that we would see another influenza viral pandemic? And did we, I guess, even predict that this could happen? Thanks, Adrian. Um, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think the answer to that is yes and no. So we've had four major pandemics in the last um, 100 years, uh, roughly, uh, the most recent of which was swine flu H1N1 uh, in 2009. So that means roughly there's a pandemic every 30, uh, 30 years. Um, and so the question is around when it would have hit as opposed to whether it would have hit. Uh, however, as you mentioned, the speed at which COVID really took hold um, and uh, spread across the world very quickly did surprise people um, and took people by uh, it took particularly health professionals by surprise. Um, I think all the signs were there, uh, so we, it could have been predicted. And I think there'll be lots of uh, dissecting of what actually happened and, and the response to it. Um, and I think there's some really serious conversations that we probably as a as a whole species need to have around our relationship with the natural world, um, whether that's in relation to something like climate change or mass production of meat and, and the transfer of or the risk factors around spreading um, essentially uh, avian flu or bird-based uh, viruses into the human uh, food chain uh, and the implications that has uh, for uh, the, the whole human species. So um, I think there's some real um, hard hitting questions I think we need to ask ourselves and also around what our response should have been and what it was. Um, so obviously, as, as I mentioned, it was a case of when it would hit as opposed to whether it would hit. Um, so I think a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of things that, that could have been done differently. But I think a lot of learning has come out of this uh, experience it's really interesting. And I think that, as you mentioned, you know, there's been so many learnings. And I think when we think about, you know, influenza style or airborne or flu type viruses, then of course, you know, it would be very different if it was a different kind of disease or infection, such as, you know, Ebola and, and how those things, as you said, from a medical perspective, but also as individuals, you know, what what can we do? What, what can we do differently? And I think actually... When I think back to, to March last year, you know, as humans, we we forget very quickly, right? So because it's been 18 months, it does feel like, wow, if you cast your mind back to when it started, I was so in awe of all the doctors, nurses, key workers, teachers, people who were still having to get up every day, go into work, go into an environment which they didn't really know if was safe for themselves and for their families. So, you know, it was so admirable, but I was, you know, in my home, like many people watching the news, watching it unfold. And you kind of, we, nobody really knew what was going to happen or how long it would last. So for you, you know, on the front line, as a, as a doctor, as a GP, what was it like for you then? It was hugely stressful. Um, I mean, I first started working in the COVID clinics in Hackney um, in late March, April. And that in itself was quite a nerve-wracking experience because this was a relatively unknown uh, virus. There were lots of horror stories um, going on within London around healthcare professionals, particularly from minority backgrounds, dying. Um, and so it was trying to deal with that whilst trying to also protect patients and carrying on with normal general practice. Mm -hmm. So there was all of that. And then there was um, the actual, just the personal uh, impact as well, not being able to see uh, friends and family uh, like everyone else. 
And one of the, uh, I think the scariest thing initially was was the supermarket shelves being empty. It really did feel, uh, you, you know, very strange mm. uh, in those first few weeks. So a lot to process like everyone else. But um, also I think it was a relief that I could go into work and, and not necessarily be stuck at home, working from home all the time. And that might sound strange, but I, I did really value that, being able to actually go in and, and see my colleagues and, and see patients. So um, that that was that was a, a positive thing, albeit in not a uh, not in the best of environments and with this um, slightly uh, unknown virus. Um, and then also the I guess the general societal issues around how COVID shone a light on on inequalities that had been um, present for decades, uh, hundreds of years, you could argue, and how actually it disproportionately, the virus disproportionately affected those people from poorer backgrounds or minority communities, both in terms Mm. of serious infection and death. Um, and, and seeing that was really difficult, uh, particularly coming from a, a minority community and how, um, I guess, a reflection on how as a health service and, and more generally as a society, we perhaps neglected some of our communities that were underserved uh, for the past few uh, decades. So even hearing you talk about it, thank you, you know, for, for sharing and for telling us so candidly, because it's easy for me to say, you know, oh, it's so admirable and it's such a selfless thing for people to do. As you mentioned, there's unknowns. And, you know, as you, you said, horror stories, you know, people, you know, so much misinformation and having to, yeah, wake up in the morning and go into a hospital or a doctor's clinic or, you know, be in service of others. is such a selfless thing to do. But like you said, at what cost, you know, now with, with how that impacts, you know, your, your physical health, your mental health. And, and as you said, all those things that, that it shone a light on, the socioeconomic impacts, the, the disparity and actually I want to talk to you a little bit more about that further on in our conversation about you know these underserved communities and and everything from a from a health from fitness you know I definitely want to dive deeper into that but first you know you mentioned the, the kind of horror stories online which I'm sure we all you know everybody was glued to you know twitter and the news and any kind of social media any kind of news you could get and you know living in a world of information sharing 24 7 being connected of course it has amazing upside in so many ways you know my son was being homeschooled and doing virtual classes with the teacher and you know you could connect with grandparents and of course there was definitely pros to being connected but i think that it could also be just so overwhelming and there's so much information and misinformation that's you know partly why i wanted to do this episode because it can be so confusing, you know, what is true, what is false, where is this information coming from? And I think as well, a lot of the information around, you know, following on in in later in the year with, with the vaccine and, you know, people trying to understand, okay, is this trusted information? Is this from medical professionals? Is there, you know, what, how can people discern, you know, what they should and what they shouldn't listen to, especially across social media? So yeah, how do you think that that kind of information overload has impacted specifically the 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 vaccine. And this is a really important point. Um, there were so when we were first having the uh, the vaccination rollout in the winter, uh, we were having lots of conversations with people, and some wanted the vaccine, but in Hackney, uh, a significant number uh, were refusing the vaccine, and we still have quite low uptake. Uh, with the COVID vaccine, unfortunately, where initially people wanted to watch and wait uh, to see what was what was going to happen. Mm. They didn't want to be guinea pigs, as, as they uh, termed it. And we had many conversations with 
um, patients, both one-to-one, but also within community events. Uh, so there was some for black communities, some for Turkish-speaking communities, where we reached out uh, to community leaders um, in collaboration with uh, champions uh, across the community and also health professionals around reassuring people that the vaccine technology had been around for decades and uh, there was uh, a lot of money invested in it uh, because it impacted so uh, adversely on, on the world's economy. Uh, and so tens of thousands of people across the world had, had entered these trials. So I myself was on the AstraZeneca trial, so I had it over a, over a year ago. Um, and trying to really get that message that this was a tested, it was a safe, effective um, vaccine and a, a safe, effective um, intervention, really, that would really uh, change the course of COVID and help us get out of uh, endless uh, lockdowns. But as you say, this was against a whole barrage of misinformation online, on WhatsApp groups, social media. Um, I think it's really difficult because social media has given a platform to very fringe ideas, whereas previously they perhaps wouldn't have had as much airtime. Now anyone can generate content, make it look really professional, and then send that within a WhatsApp group. And before you know it, it's, um, you know, it's been spread, it's been shared um, almost like a virus uh, across the world very, very quickly. And that's a really difficult thing to be uh, to be pitted against because often these videos have very persuasive narratives where people are, are getting their agenda um, across around. Uh, they might be anti-vaxxers, they might have concerns. And I think, so I, I think it is really difficult for people to weigh this up and the blame should never rest with the person that's viewing the video because I think that um, it is confusing to get lots of different conflicting information. Mm-hmm. Who do you believe? Um, I mean, I'd hope to, uh, that, that most people would... Um, you know, listen to health professionals and and look at NHS resources. But um, we live in an information-rich environment and the power of narrative uh, and being sent videos is Mm. is really strong. So um, it it can be difficult Mm. to weigh this up, which is why we were strong with our counter uh, information, I guess, our well-sourced information and doing these community engagement events, coming into, going into communities, using um, champions within certain underserved groups. So, for example, we worked quite hard with undocumented migrants and we sent out messages uh, with the East Asian Chinese community of come and come to Hackney and get your vaccination because we won't be asking for your documents. And um, alongside that, we did a lot of engagement pieces and, and we talked about what the facts around the vaccine were um, versus the myths that were uh, persisting. Mm. So a lot of conversations, uh, a lot of um, sustained engagement with communities that um, we hadn't previously reached. And I think that's where... I'm quite excited, as, as negative as COVID has been, um, is this opportunity to really think about how we deliver healthcare, how we deliver messaging around health to underserved groups. Because I think we can't go back to how we did things before. Because when you look at all types of health um, kind of outcomes, whether it's diabetes, um, immunizations, um, heart attacks, things like that, there's always a, a, a disproportionate number of people that are affected um, and things like socioeconomic status, there's there's a gradient where people that are poor are, are adversely affected and those from minority communities. And really, I think if we can crack this for COVID, which we've really tried, um, then I think we should 
have the same sort of uh, ethos for other health conditions, both reactively, but ideally proactively and preventatively uh, going forward. Mm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the numbers don't lie. As you said, that direct correlation is undeniable when it comes to these things. And before we before we move on to that, I actually want to touch on, loop back on something you said about safety. So the first thing, you know, when you talked about people's concerns and, you know, this word safety comes up again and again. And I've heard that from, as you said, people wanting to watch and wait and going, oh, well, we don't know if it's safe yet. And, oh, watch and wait and all this kind of thing. And actually it really got me thinking as, as, somebody who you know reads a lot listens to a lot of podcasts i try to i try to think i'm quite an innovative person when it comes to problem solving and thinking and so my brain just tends to go to kind of like a yeah solutions kind of thing and i was thinking about this idea of safety and what does safety actually mean so when you think about risk and risk assessment and people being risk averse and you think about the things that we do in our daily lives that might be is it safe or how much risk is involved in getting in your car to drive on the motorway or catching a flight or drinking alcohol or having um, a different vaccination if you're traveling to a country where they say you need to have the yellow fever jab or you need to have hepatitis B and people say, okay, wicked, they get their jab, they go on their holiday. So when people say, well, is it safe? Is it safe? Often it's like, well, what are the parameters that we're looking at when we talk about safety? Like if someone says to you as a doctor, is it safe? You know, I'm thinking, well, is it safer than getting the virus? Is it safer than, you know, how are we actually, yeah, what are the parameters when we think about safety and risk in the things we do every single day? Is there some way that we can make it comparable? Is that even possible? How do you define safe? Is it really, safe? Really, uh, again, another interesting point. I, I think this is, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that hits the, the nail uh, on the head, really. It's uh, about contextualizing risk and actually having a discussion around risk with a patient I find one of the most difficult um, uh, difficult conversations because for example when you're talking to someone about their cholesterol and maybe taking a statin uh, to lower that which is a medication helped uh, that, that can help lower uh, cholesterol how do you convey risk when it comes in you know say one in 500 chance of um, you know, preventing a heart attack. It's quite a difficult thing for, for someone to, to try and process because people will then say, well, you know, and this is just using an example. It's, you know, there might be 499 out of 500 people that have high cholesterol that don't have a heart attack. Um, so how do you convey risk and, and bring that into uh, a conversation, a one-to-one -one conversation with a patient? And uh, I think it is, I think it is a, 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 it's it's a conversation that needs balance. I think one of the things that, that came across mm. early on was people saying that we don't just want one-sided information about the this vaccine being the best thing, thing since sliced bread and that it's going to cure everything and it's going to prevent COVID and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be out of the uh, pandemic straight away and people are going to be absolutely fine with it. People don't like one-sided biased information and one of the early things that has come up is about people wanting to know the risks so knowing that they'll be um, having a sore arm knowing that they'll have flu-like um, symptoms for the next day or two after having the vaccine um, so these are common risks that people really do need to know about and want to know about there were other risks that then came up as we rolled the program out, so such as the blood clot issue with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which, although minuscule, um, as you mentioned, we had to then weigh up and say, well, 
it's it's tiny. It's it's like a couple of cases in in a million of having these rare blood clots um, that can potentially be very serious and fatal. Um, but it's a risk nonetheless, so we have to communicate that to to patients. And actually, comparing it to other things was really helpful. So, for example, for women, women taking the pill that has a higher risk of, of blood clots, or being pregnant has an even higher risk of being blood um, of having a blood clot. Um, and equally, having COVID itself massively increases the risk of um, having a blood clot. So it's all relative. And it's it's being able to convey that in a succinct um, and a personable way with the person in front of you um, that is a challenge. And also the beauty of, of being a, a health professional, I think, um, it, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, and you don't always win. Mm. Uh, we've done a lot of um, a lot of training with health, health professionals over the past few months around using things like motivational interviewing and um, change behaviour within uh, patients and that you don't always win. In fact, you might not win 99 times out of 100, but you might have planted a seed in someone that, that then might convince them to take the next step to have the vaccine. And, and talking about risk is, mm. is really part of that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with with all of this, just remembering that, you know, we have to have compassion for people, for where they're at and for what their understanding is and not have this kind of judgment. Because I definitely feel like there was, you know, it's been very divisive and my people almost judging and saying, oh, you know, whatever the other person thinks is is stupid or belittling them. And I think actually having compassion and understanding that people ultimately want what is best, you know, for themselves, for their family members, for their friends, for their children. And I think often it comes from fear. You know, when people are afraid, that's whether that's afraid of getting the virus, afraid of the potential, you know, vaccine, whatever it is. I think fear and being compassionate to the fact that people have, you know, mental health uh, issues around this anxiety, fear of like, what if, what if? And as you said, trying to weigh up these kind of invisible pros and cons, which they don't necessarily have all the information, I think has just been I've definitely seen that amongst, you know, my age group, my peer group. I've seen that for people who have been either pregnant, friends that, you know, in their early 30s, late 20s that are pregnant or trying to get pregnant or or people who've had, you know, other health conditions such as asthma or, or diabetes. And I think it's real sometimes been a lack of compassion around understanding the layers of complexity when it comes to health and when it comes to how we view yeah, I guess taking taking risk. And as someone who works, you know, in the health and wellness industry, I've been a personal trainer for, for almost 10 years. And I've worked with hundreds of different clients, you know, I've studied different training modalities, different effects on the body. So I try to, you know, I'd like to think that I try and keep up to speed on everything that impacts fitness, health, benefits, nutrition, recovery, all of it. But, you know, we, we've seen the, the stories of incredibly, you know, young people, fit people, active people, you know, having, contracting the virus and and suffering. And myself, you know, I can say myself, I had COVID and I was so, so ill. And, you know, people would say to me, oh, well, you're super young and fit and you run marathons and you're, you know, you're not overweight. And they wouldn't expect for for me to have been so ill as, as I was. So I guess there's two parts to this question. One is, you know, when it comes to living an active, healthy life and and fitness. And of course, I'm always going to be an advocate for those things. But I don't want people to think that, okay, well, if you live an active, fit and healthy life, then, you know, disease, infection, you know, viruses, that these things, we're not immune from them, no matter who you are. Absolutely. And I've seen lots of, uh, of my own patients, young, fit, healthy adults that 
have uh, had COVID very early on in the first wave and either had very severe disease, as you mentioned. So uh, they might not have ended up in hospital. Some of them have actually, and some of them needed um, oxygen. Uh, most of them did survive. Um, but then quite a large proportion of, of these uh, people that have COVID then end up with long COVID syndrome. So these are things like shortness of breath, tiredness symptoms that last for six, nine, 12 months, even ha after having the infection and clearing it. And the other, I guess the other the point is that, um, uh, that, that it's also to protect people around you. So um, if you have the vaccine, then you've got some level of protection against COVID against getting COVID, not not completely, and I'll, I'll come on to that in a, in a second. Um, but then that means that when you're visiting your aunt or, or your uncle or your grandparents, then you've got less of a risk of spreading it to them. The other point I was going to make was around um, not completely protecting you. So we know that you're less likely to have COVID if you've had the vaccine, but um, you could still get the infection. So it, it's the vaccine's aim is mainly to stop serious disease and death. So whereas if mm. you had had COVID without the vaccine and ended up on ITU or dying, unfortunately, having had both the doses, you might only get very mild symptoms. So that's a very important point that I want to uh, get across because there, there, there has been a, a question about why recently there's been increasing uh, infection rate despite the, the vaccination uh, programme and we will keep seeing that but it's just that if you look at the death rate compared to the first and the second wave actually it's not been completely broken but that link between infection and increased death rate has been weakened significantly because of the vaccination programme. Hmm. Yeah, well, there's two things, to be honest, I'm thinking now, which probably the listeners are like, has she had the vaccine? And so I guess just for full disclosure, this is just my, you know, experience is that, yes, I, I have had the vaccine. And I guess, you know, we talked about disparity and the fact that, you know, the numbers don't lie and the stats. And as I said, I've worked in the health and wellness industry for a decade. And I think there's no getting away from the fact as well that, you know, the correlation that we saw between, like you said, um, lower social economic communities some some ethnic minorities but also people who were obese and overweight and the kind of again the correlation between access and diet and funds and sports and all of those things that you know the the numbers are directly related to the people that you know it developed into more serious illness and and death so you know when it comes to like we talked about learnings and if we're gonna learn from this and we're gonna say okay Yes, we tell people to be active, you know, get go out for a walk, go out for a run. I think the recommended minutes of exercise per week from the government is 150. And, and personally, you know, I don't think that that's enough. And some people might say, well, Adrienne, you're a personal trainer, you're, you love running, you, you know, you take your son out on long bike rides and you run. And sometimes people think it's a bit extreme, you know, that if I if I was to say, OK, 150 minutes a week, I'd probably say my recommendation would be closer to an hour a day. So an hour a day of exercise is closer to 400 minutes a week. So, you know, do you think that one of the learnings from this is that, you know, being active it's, it's so, so important. And obviously our lives have become more and more sedentary with, you know, cars and computers and trains. And, you know, we don't have to move anymore. And actually, if these, you know, if another virus comes, if another pandemic comes, you know, are we going to be better off if we are taking care of ourselves physically and keeping fit and healthy and active and how much should we i guess post pan post 
COVID, be encouraging people to really take this seriously. Yeah, really good points. So uh, we know that having an underlying health condition like diabetes, high blood pressure or being uh, overweight does increase your risk of serious COVID um, and ending up in hospital or even dying. So yes, absolutely. Being healthy is is very important. So exercise, uh, diet, um, and really, I think it's whatever exercise you can fit into your uh, routine. So if you're not doing anything, then even 15 minutes is is, is better than nothing. And uh, even if you can't quite achieve the recommended uh, sort of weekly uh, recommendation uh, by the government, um, yeah, I think the key thing is to do as much as you can. We know that um, actually that because of, of other factors that some people just have... Um, poor access to healthy food. We know that healthy food mm. is, is more expensive. Um, we know um, that actually, for example, I talked to my um, uh, to a patient that I had a few years ago. Uh, he was a man who was depressed in his 30s. I mean, he had his uh, daughter who was overweight and the daughter was being bullied. And I said, well, you know, what about a bit of exercise and, and going out and playing um, in, in, in the local sort of uh, apartments where they... they uh, lived and uh, the dad said to me that actually it was really unsafe that there was uh, a lot of knife crime on the estate and he didn't want the daughter to go out so it's I think again this goes back to the discussion around health inequality so how can we help people those mm. who are um, have less access to good quality food and regular exercise how can we bring that to them and make it more accessible to make that as part of their routine um, rather than, um, I guess, making healthy people healthier, uh, if that makes sense. So really deal, dealing with the inequalities. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, like you just how you just put it, is actually, again, going back to the compassion point around actually helping people who need the help. And as you said, not making healthy people healthier by saying, oh, you know, add in an extra reformer Pilates mm. session or whatever. But I think that's the point, isn't it? Is that for a lot of people that, that A, the education point, you know, I work with young people and, you know, often when I speak to them about getting active and exercise and movement and how important it is for everything, you know, their sleep, concentration at school, energy levels, hormones, you know, that it's almost the education around why it's important and not just saying to people, get on some trainers and get out for a run, you know? And I think, as you said as well, that inequality around around nutrition, around cost. I think there's a long way to go before we can say that, you know, we're doing anywhere near enough to yeah, encourage not just young people, but people to have the access and the support that they need instead of assigning, I guess, this this like personalized blame of like, well, you should do it, but actually giving everyone the same, you know, not just motivating them, but giving them tools to actually, you know, have that change. And I think that is one positive thing, because I know that this episode, you know, it, it can sound a bit doom and gloom, but I do think that is one positive thing that I've certainly seen in, in my work that I do in the last year and a half has been watching people actually who don't have access to a gym or who don't own a bike or who don't say, you know what, I'm going to, walk around the block or I'm going to do a workout in my living room with my kids, you know, on a, on an app or on a YouTube, or I'm going to, I don't know, maybe I've seen, you know, we've seen people finding all different ways, even the athletes, you know, training for the Olympics. We saw amazing videos and footage of how they were having to train in their back garden or train in their bedroom. So I think that was one really positive thing was showing people, you know what, if there's a will, there's a way and actually getting active is so important. It, even if you're, you know, 
can't do all the things that you were doing before then you you know you can you can do it at home but for those listening who are you know maybe gym goers they go to yoga studios they go to swimming pools you know do we bringing it back to this idea that you know during the pandemic those things were closed and so many people in that community you know they just missed being there in that space so how important is it you know the vaccine take up for helping those places to remain open to for people to remain active you know is it important that actually for us to be in those spaces sweating and working out and swimming that we are vaccinated yeah really important i think that um this is why I think particularly with the with younger people, we're trying to encourage vaccination as much as possible, exactly for those reasons, so that gyms uh, and fitness studios can continue um, and people that, that do uh, find their services helpful can carry on. Because actually, um, there is, you know, I've uh, started going back to a fitness studio uh, that, that I live uh, close to, and I can see that they are taking extra measures, so wiping down all the equipment, making sure that there's social distancing. So I think all that still needs to remain. Um, we can't get complacent even if you have been vaccinated because of all the reasons that I mentioned, that there is uh, a risk of still um, getting infected even if you've had double uh, vaccinations. However, um, having a double vaccination ensures that we're more likely to protect ourselves and each other um, and reduce the infection rate and therefore reduce the chance of increasing restrictions like we had last year. Um, and so it's, it, there's, there's a greater chance that a lot of these recreational activities, gyms, uh, fitness studios can stay open um, throughout um, the, the winter, hopefully, because um, we, we inevitably will see an increase in uh, cases, but it's just hopefully the more that people have the vaccine, particularly those uh, that people that, that have underlying health conditions have the vaccine, the more everyone's protected um, and the more that we can keep the economy going, keep this, keep society functioning uh, as it was pre-COVID um, and hopefully improve society as, as, as I think we can't just go back to normal, but also think about how we um, better ourselves as, as a society, whether that's um, exercising more or being um, more uh, kind of, I guess, community minded, because that's the other thing. I think um, the pandemic has opened up exercise to people. So I see lots of people going out walking that perhaps previously um, hadn't been exactly as you said, Adrian. Um, and, but the other uh, point is that um, what I'd like to see is actually an improvement in our society. So, um, so it, we've seen people uh, exercising more, so people going on walks who previously hadn't done before and really taking in uh, our natural uh, outdoor spaces. But also this community-mindedness, so these mutual aid groups that were set up where people were having medication delivered to them or shopping delivered to them by their neighbours. And I think that was a really positive thing that came out of the pandemic, and it'd be great if that sort of thing continued yeah, absolutely. I mean, I certainly got to know my neighbours in the street where I live and so did my son. And it's, as you say, it's really nice, actually, to feel like that community element of, you know, exchanging numbers and actually, you know, checking up on, on elderly neighbours via WhatsApp. I know uh, our neighbours who are in their 80s downloaded WhatsApp so that we could message them. And yeah, that was that was great. And actually, you know, as we're coming to the part of the show where I'd love to talk to you about the Power Hour and, you know, this show is about, you know, it's about motivation, it's about encouragement, it's about, you know, actually 
forward thinking and looking ahead. And so I'd love to, you know, as you said, like when I think about the things that I'm looking forward to and the things that hopefully will start to happen again and creating not a new normal, but a new routine for myself, then, you know, the morning is, is huge for me. So I'd love to know a little bit about your power hour, about your morning, like moving forward, what things are, are you looking forward to and how do you hope to start your day? Yeah. So I like to not rush in the morning. Uh, so getting up extra early to make sure that I have a good pace and rhythm to the morning. Um, I don't do rushing because then it just disrupts my entire day. Uh, so uh, early, getting up early, doing a few uh, yoga stretches. I think that's really important. Um, waking up and, and um, feeling refreshed. It not only uh, sort of helps uh, with my joints and, and feeling like I've... Uh, uh, really stretched out, but also it puts me in the right frame of mind, calms me uh, for the day ahead. Uh, and I think that kind of routine, actually, um, it came, I, I, I changed that during COVID. Uh, so previously I did used to wake up um, and just go straight for a coffee and, and check emails and go straight to work. But actually I've carved a bit of time out to do that because I, I've seen the value of it through COVID. So I was doing, uh, and this is the other thing that the accessibility of being able to do. Um, so often I say to patients, you know, 20 minutes of yoga in the morning, um, try something like that. And they, they say that they can't afford it. But actually, I mean, I follow a YouTube video um, and that's, you know, I've got a mat at home. I follow a YouTube video and, you know, 15, 20 minutes of yoga um, and mindfulness can I think really set you up for a positive day ahead um, and the other the other uh, habit that I've got into is, is journaling mm. uh, so I'd read um, lots about it and um, lots of my friends had, had started it but I think there's something about getting thoughts um, from your head onto paper that I think is very satisfying and also helps to achieve things so I uh, definitely recommend that to all, mm. all of the listeners. Yeah, well, you are speaking my language and the listeners of the show will know that, that, you know, journaling in the morning, exercise in the morning. And as you said, carving out that space, I think it's a really great reminder because actually a lot of people did the same as you during the pandemic. They, they maybe had a reassessment of their morning and maybe they didn't have to commute or they didn't have to take the kids to school. And so they said, oh, you know what, Adrienne, I've heard you talk about this power hour and this morning for so long. I'm finally going to give it a go. I'm finally going to carve out some space. And actually, my fear is that as things return to you know busyness and you mentioned you don't do rushing in the morning but I think that's potentially when people let go of that you know oh I'm too busy now or the kids and work and there'll always be demands on our time always from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to sleep and I really want people to take that reminder of it's so important that if you take that time carve out that space cling on to it make it a priority and start your day in whatever way you want whether it's calming whether it's energizing whether it's you know going for a run whatever you want but try to keep on to that as we yeah as the world starts to open up again and as we start to kind of fill up our diaries again and get busy because I have to remind myself I'm a busy person I like to do a lot of things but the morning routine and the power hour is the thing that remains the same you know everything else can change but that is absolutely non-negotiable for me so that was great to hear thank you so much thank you 
And thanks for joining. This conversation has been fascinating. I, as, as I mentioned, I, I haven't done an episode specifically talking about this for lots of different reasons. You know, as we said, lots of information, information overload. And I also wanted to have a professional, a doctor, to have this conversation with. So I really do appreciate it. As I mentioned, this is a special episode. It's a partnership with the Mayor of London. But I really hope that the listeners of this show have, have enjoyed it. And if you have, then please do let us know and please do share it with others. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Power Hour this week. For more information and the most up-to-date info on the COVID-19 vaccines, please visit the NHS website. To get your vaccine, you can search book COVID vaccine or visit your local walk-in centre. Stay safe. See ya. See ya.